Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you that the Word has become flesh and dwelt among us. We worship you in his name and by his power and authority. We ask now as we open your Word together that your Spirit would come among us and give us understanding. Show us ourselves clearly in the Scriptures. Show us Jesus. Convince us by your Spirit's power that this word is true, that he is a faithful Savior, and that he is able to save to the uttermost all who call upon him in repentance and faith. We ask this in his name. Amen. You take your seat. We open with me to the very last chapter of the book of Matthew, in fact, the very last paragraph in Matthew's Gospel. In the midst of a, of a little mini-series, a two-part series, on stewardship. Now, last week, we looked at the relationship from the Scriptures between stewardship and worship. Between the, the, the worship of the true and living God and our physical possessions. And, and noting those ties together that precede long before the Mosaic Law. Well, today, the title of the sermon is Stewardship and the Great Commission. We'll be looking at a text that is, is familiar to us with respect to the Great Commission, but we're also going to be looking at this with some very practical considerations in mind. How is it, what is it that Christ has commanded to us, and how does that work itself out in time and space? We need also to make the same connection as we made between worship and stewardship, between the Great Commission and stewardship. And, and very simply, the Great Commission of King Jesus to his church requires the active participation of all of his subjects including the generous sharing of their time and treasure. King Jesus has come and commanded his church to go forth, and that requires the full participation of every one of his subjects, every one of his people. And that participation needs to take the form of both our time and our treasure. Everything in Matthew's Gospel, from the very beginning, from the very first sentence, all the way to the end, is written to demonstrate the kingship and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at this under three headings. As we, In a moment, I'll read, beginning in verse 16. Under three headings, the Great Commission begins with a universal kingship. That's the foundation of everything. Secondly, the Great Commission requires the planting and support of local churches. And thirdly, the Great Commission comes with the king's promised presence. So let's consider the word of God together beginning in verse 16 of Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's consider in the first place, the Great Commission begins with a universal kingship. In this Great Commission, Jesus first reminds us that he is the creator, he's the owner, he's the king and sovereign of all things, of all of our resources. Now, often when we think about the Great Commission, or even when we might quote it, or we hear somebody else quote it, they kind of jump in in the middle, and we begin with the go therefore. But that's not how the Great Commission begins. The Great Commission begins with Jesus' declaration that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Jesus has been crowned king of both heaven and earth by God the Father. He has every right to be worshipped, to be revered, to be honored, to be glorified. Now, just as we started last week in looking at the connection between worship and stewardship, we started in the garden, and we start in the same place again. Adam was charged with subduing the world and filling that world with worshipers of God. That was Adam's task. He was a prophet, priest, and king in the garden. Of course, we know how that ended, don't we? Adam rebelled against God. He sinned, and with him all mankind sinned, and Adam was driven out 
of the sanctuary. He's driven out of the temple, out of the garden, by God the Father. Now, the second Christ, or Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam, Paul teaches us in the book of Romans, that Jesus Christ is that second Adam. He is the one who has not failed. He will not fail. He has fulfilled everything that the first Adam failed to do. And now, Jesus, as the exalted king, prophet, and priest, has commissioned his church to go under his authority, under his banner, in his name, to fill the earth with worshipers. So from the very beginning of his gospel, again, Matthew has labored to show us this kingliness of Jesus. If you go all the way back to the very beginning of Matthew, it begins with this statement, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And of course, even the title means Messiah or King. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Both David and Abraham had promises placed upon them by God that from them would come a king. Abraham was first called by God, and we see that first promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. But in Genesis 17, God reiterates that. It says, from you, kings will come. And of course, from David, a king will come and reign eternally and perpetually on your throne. So from the the get-go, Matthew is, is, is communicating to us, impressing upon us that Christ is the long-awaited king. Of course, Matthew 2 begins with Jesus' birth in Bethlehem of Judea, just as the prophets foretold. And we see wise men coming from the east to worship what? Or who? A king, the one who'd been promised. And this continues all the way through. And of course, in Matthew 21, we see this kingly royal procession where Jesus gives instructions to his disciples to go to a certain place. There's a colt there. Grab the colt. If anyone asks you, you say, well, the master has need of it. And then Jesus rides in, as the prophet had foretold, on a borrowed colt. And all the people have their palm branches waving before him. And they're shouting out, Hosanna to God in the highest. Hosanna, son of David. Here's the coronation of King Jesus. And now, in Matthew 28, the resurrected and exalted Christ appears before his disciples, and he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Jesus here is alluding to Daniel chapter 7. Two chapters earlier in Matthew, Jesus quotes this directly. He's before the high priest, and he says, you are going to see me coming on the clouds before the Ancient of Days. That's exactly what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, Jesus is alluding to this. Now, Why is this important? Before we look at the Great Commission, why is it important to establish and understand the kingship of Jesus? What does this have to do with stewardship? Well, God made Adam king over all of the earth, but God has made Jesus Christ, the risen and exalted Christ, king of both the heaven and the earth. He is the the Lord who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is the one about whom the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, because Christ has been given this authority. And this reality has at least two implications for us. It has at least two implications for us. Number one, Jesus is the owner of all things. This is a newsflash, isn't it? Jesus owns everything, not me, not you, not us. We are but stewards of the resources he has given to us. We are merely managers. So all that you have... Everything that is in your bank account, everything that is in your closet or your pantry or your freezer or in your car, all of that belongs to God. It is actually the Lord's. And you are given that as a stewardship, as a managerial task. And the fact that we will take nothing from this world with us testifies to the fact that we don't own it. It, We are meant these things for God's use. We have no authority and no right to withhold anything 
that our king says, that one's mine, and that's to be used for me. But there's a second implication. The first is that he is the owner of everything, not us, because he is the king. But the second is, is that we are not without the resources that we need. Because he is a benevolent king, and because he is the sovereign over all things, and because he does own the cattle on a thousand hills, every resource that we might need is at our disposal. We have Christ. We have all that we need, more than we need. The maker and owner of all things is able to provide everything that we might need if only we will believe that. When we withhold our offerings to the Lord, we are betraying our unbelief that he is actually able to provide what we need. In Revelation chapter 5, and I quoted this last week, but I want to repeat it again. In verse chapter 5, verse 11, John in his vision said, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. See, in the Great Commission, Jesus first reminds us that he's the creator and owner. He is the king and sovereign over all resources, which means we don't own anything, but that's actually good news for us. That's not bad news, that's good news for us. Because the one who owns everything is is a God of infinite supply. He is a well that will never run dry. We have all that we could ever need in him. But the second thing we see in this Great Commission, this begins with a kingship. But then we also see the Great Commission requires the planting and support of local churches. In the Great Commission, Jesus requires this. He requires his churches to replicate. He required his apostles to plant and establish churches, and for those churches to plant and establish and support other local churches. King Jesus commands this, that we establish and fund embassies in his name. I mean, this is where the kingly image is important. He is a king, and he's establishing gospel outposts. He's establishing embassies throughout the world. And everybody knows an embassy has to be funded. There have to be personnel. There, have to be, there, there are tasks to be done in the name of the king. Jesus gives this great commission to his apostles as, as his representatives of his gathered church. So as, as here Matthew puts the scene, the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Remember, we just read, uh, in, uh, Andrew read for us in, in John, how Judas was the one who betrayed. Judas was, has, Satan entered him and he left and departed. And we know how it ends for Judas. Now there are 11. We'll see in Acts, they restore the number to 12. But it's important here, and I'll say this near the end, it's an important fact that, that Matthew points out, that there's an incompletion here. There's a deficiency inherent in us as human beings. And that's, that's sort of symbolized in the eleven. In the Hebrew mind, 12 was a sense of wholeness. 11 would have immediately jumped off the page to the Hebrews. Wait a minute. Something is lacking. Something is incomplete. But Jesus says to them, because he has been, because he has been bestowed all authority and dominion over everything, he says, go therefore. And literally, it's having been sent. Make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And see, when we reduce the Great Commission to evangelism only, we miss the full measure of what Christ has commanded to us. This is a commission. When we understand the comprehensive nature of it, we begin to see that that only the church gathered and assembled could ever carry this out. Think about this. No matter how gifted a man might be for the pastorate, let's look at the the Apostle Paul as an example, a supremely gifted man who received direct and immediate revelation from God, and yet Paul was insufficient for the work of the Great Commission all by himself. It was necessary, and he knew this, that he participate in and establish and even be sent out by a local church. His very first missionary journey was commissioned along with Barnabas by the church in Antioch to go. It was the Holy Spirit who commanded the church to send Paul. He didn't command, the Spirit did not command Paul and Barnabas to go. He commanded the church to send them. We also learned by observing how the apostles carried out the commission that that planting and sustaining local churches is, is central to the Great Commission. 
Now, back in, in September of 2020, as we were wrapping up the exposition of Matthew, I spent several weeks camped out on the, the Great Commission. So there's some things that I'm just going to assume here, but if you think I haven't made the case, and I would refer you to Sermon Audio back in September of 2020 for the fuller expression of this. But there, I argued that the, the Great Commission is not given to us as individuals. It's given to the church gathered. And that the Great Commission requires the planting of churches. Not, not parachurch ministries, not tent revivals, not the, but local churches. That's the only way we can, we can fulfill the mandate to make disciples. To baptize them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. To disciple them, to train them, to instruct them in all that Jesus had commanded. T. David Gordon said, evangelism is only an aspect of the commission. It's not its distilled essence. Obedience to the commands of Christ is the goal of the commission, not merely initial conversion. Further, this very comprehensiveness excludes the possibility that it can be fulfilled through the efforts of any particular individual. No individual within the church can possibly be responsible for filling the commission, and no individual is without responsibility to contribute in some way or ways to its fulfilling. And again, even the Apostle Paul, as gifted as he was, even at one point he said, I didn't baptize anyone. Who did? The church that he had established. And the responsibilities given to local churches to make disciples and to teach and counsel and instruct God's people require a sharing of resources, both, again, of time and of treasure. And every disciple of Christ has to take an active role in supporting that work, supporting and sustaining the Great Commission. And first, by financially supporting his own local church, and then through generous giving to support other churches that are being planted and established and who need support as well, and also for the training of men to pastor those churches. There's a requirement upon every one of us to participate in those ways, and I think we can far too easily neglect to consider how even our humble offerings can be magnified and used by the Lord to advance His kingdom. And when we prayerfully give to the Lord in His work, we share in those labors. You ever think about that? Sometimes it's something as, as seemingly ordinary as writing a check or giving in, in financial ways, giving in tangible ways. Like the Lord magnifies those and uses those for the advancement of his kingdom. And this is precisely what the Lord Jesus taught. When he sent his own disciples out, two by two, he taught that even giving a cup of cold water in his name was a participation in the going and also a participation in the, the reward of the goer. Listen to what he says. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. You can see this in Matthew 10, verse 40. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Sometimes we can minimize the, the means that God uses to advance and establish his kingdom, to establish these embassies, these local churches. We think, well, because I'm not a mouth, to use Paul's image of the body in 1 Corinthians, then I'm not as useful, I'm not as valuable. What Jesus is saying, the one who even gives the cup of cold water in his name to the one who is going in his name, shares into that mission, and receives the same reward. It's remarkable, isn't it? I love this quote from Alistair Begg. He says, by our giving, our money can make us overseas missionaries without ever leaving home, turn us into evangelists without ever standing on a platform, make us broadcasters without ever entering a studio, and Bible teachers without ever writing a book. It's remarkable. Notice here in 1 Corinthians, turn with me there, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul makes the case for this financial support as, as a necessity for the advancement of the gospel. I mean, Paul is not merely a pragmatist, but nor is he so hyper-spiritual 
that he fails to consider the practical realities of living and working and ministering in this world. So in chapter 9, Paul is, is, is dealing with these, there have been a lot of personal accusations made against him. There are these so-called super apostles that have come in and, and claim to be uh, teaching a superior gospel to Paul. And Paul is responding to some of these objections. Listen to what he says. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, or Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now here, Paul's talking about his freedom to receive financial support from the Corinthian church. In fact, he says it's, it's even right that they'd be able to, to bring along a believing wife, literally a sister, bring along a believing wife at the church's expense. The church has the ch- Corinthian church, says Paul, had that obligation. But he did not avail himself of that right because he wanted to avoid the charge of these false apostles that he was taking advantage of the Corinthians. Now, ironically, these false apostles had no problem of conscience themselves fleecing the Corinthian church. They just made the accusation against Paul for doing that. And some have sought to use Paul's statements here as a justification for promoting bivocational pastors as opposed to a professional ministry. Some have thought to use these statements as a justification to to this preferred state of affairs. Some have wrongly argued that since Paul preached for free, that, that that should be the pattern for everyone in every place. But that misses, in fact, that even reverses Paul's argument. And if we still miss that point in 1 Corinthians 9... And then when he writes again in the second, what we call 2 Corinthians, he characterizes the support that he received from other churches in order that he might preach in Corinth to be out of order. He says to the Corinthian church, it's, it's actually dis, it's a disordered state of affairs that, I, that I'm ministering to you and have to receive support from someone else. Listen to what he says. He uses very strong language in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 7. He said, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted, because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So Paul actually uses this language of robbery because it was such a responsibility of the Corinthian church that when they neglected that responsibility and and let Paul be the recipient of of the offerings from another church, the churches in Macedonia, which would be primarily the church at Philippi. And what makes this matter even worse is that the brothers who came from Macedonia were from Philippi and those surrounding churches, and Paul acknowledged that they actually give out of poverty. It wasn't because the Philippian church was so wealthy 
that they could afford to, to support Paul and the Corinthian church was poor. It was actually the other way around. The poor church gave generously above and beyond what they actually had in order to support Paul as he ministered in a relatively much more wealthy church. It was indeed robbery for one church to neglect its duties and be perfectly content for other churches to pick up their slack. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches at Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then, by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, and speech, and knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. See, Paul says that the Philippian church, the Macedonian churches, actually begged to participate in this and said, but it wasn't because they had a surplus of means. They actually were lacking and yet wanted to participate. And we might be tempted to object that we cannot afford to support our own local church, much less support the work of the gospel in, in other places. But the Macedonians come to us as a rebuke to that kind of thinking, don't they? They come to us as an admonishment, but hopefully as an encouragement, too. The example of the Macedonian churches ought to correct maybe some wrong thinking that says that, that giving to the church is based on what I can afford. Basically, I don't have anything left over, therefore I'm not able to give. But they were in poverty and yet gave to support the Apostle Paul's work in Corinth. The duty of every single church member to support the gospel financially has been well understood throughout church history. In fact, a failure to do so was often considered a breach of church membership. And I, I, I for the sake of brevity, I edited out of, of my notes, but there's really some great material. And Jim Renahan has a, a new work on the, it's an exposition of the first London Baptist Confession. And what's really remarkable is that the Baptists got a lot of criticism from Presbyterians and Anglicans and others because they had the audacity to put in their confession of faith that a local church ought to support their own ministers. And, of course, that was pushing back against a very statist worldview. All the other churches, their ministers received their salary, not from the, the members, but from the civil magistrate. Now, the Baptists were, didn't make this up. They got this from the Bible, didn't they? And... But when they put that in their confession that said it's actually not the role of the government, but it is the role of each local church to support itself. And, and the Presbyterians and the Anglicans all kind of howled and screamed, the, the, the ancient equivalent of blog posts. They published pamphlets and things back and forth. And, and, and they, they sort of howled at this and said, but what if the church doesn't do its duty? Pastors will be in poverty. And they're right about that. But... That was, they were going back to the scriptures, and, and it was, it was such, a, such, a, such a cataclysmic shift of thinking to actually go back to the scriptures and say, what do the scriptures require of a local church? How is the Great Commission carried out? What does this look like in, in real life? There was a, just this last month in, in Nine Marks Journal, one of their interns, an intern by the name of Caleb Morell, has been doing some research and looking at a lot of the, the old minutes one of the advantages of being at an old church like Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C. is that you can go back a long way in history. The church used to be called Metropolitan Baptist Church, and he's been going back and looking at the minute books, and he's, and he's asked the question historically, did the church discipline its members for lack of attendance? And the answer was yes, um, not just because they missed a Sunday, but because th this was a, a, would be gone for months at a time with, no excuse, no call, no show, that kind of thing. But listen to what he says. By far the most frequent reason a name would come before the board of deacons and pastor at Metropolitan Baptist Church, which is today Capitol Hill, was non-attendance. They are so numerous that it would be exhausting to list each case. So just a few examples will be cited. For instance, on December 21st, 1887, 
the board brought the name of Brother Paul Robinson to the church for, quote, remaining from church services, and listen to this, and neglecting to support the gospel. As they go on to explain, quote, the board feels that it is due to the cause of the master and the interest of the church that would members continually absent themselves from the church services without good reason and neglect paying some small sum toward defraying the, ex- the expenses of supporting the gospel, that their cases are such as demand action. According to another report from the pastor and deacons on July 17, 1889, so this was just two years later, the most common reasons for dropping a name from membership was stated as follows, quote, mainly lack of interest, non-attendance, and failure to contribute to the support of the gospel with evidence inconsistent with Christian calling. They took these matters very seriously. Now, note, it, it, the, the, there was no, there's nothing in the record that says they disciplined someone for not giving enough. The, the, the particular amount someone gave was their own private matter. The concern was if it was giving, if the amount was zero, if it was no participation financially in the work of the gospel. And they saw, and, and, and this is a practical reality, and, and any, any pastor, any, any group of deacons would tell you this. There is a correlation between attendance and giving. There always, always, always is. So he goes on, uh, Morell goes on to list numerous other examples, and they, they understood the responsibility of every Christian not only to attend church regularly, but also to contribute proportionately to the cause of the gospel with some measure of financial support. And a member's failure to, to do that opened up the possibility of church discipline. They took it very seriously. In our own church covenant, every GFBC Conroe member has taken public vows, quote, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. And, and I, I am so thankful that the, the vast majority of our, our members understand this and embrace this and worship God in this way. And we saw last week, tithing is not law. It's not law in the sense that we're bound to Moses. The ceremonial, the judicial laws of Israel have been abrogated. They've been fulfilled in Christ. They're, they're gone. They're done away with. But the principle of the tithe, the principle of a giving of a tenth, we saw last week, precedes Moses. So, so we shouldn't just presume that the pattern of giving 10% of our income to God has just simply vanished, been done away with. The pattern precedes the law. And if the Old Covenant demanded offerings to God as a testimony of our, of our gratitude to God, how much more should those of us under the superior covenant, the superior new covenant grace, how much more should our gratitude overflow? in those ways, both in our, our, our presence, our heartfelt attention and affections, but also in the tangible expression of our worship and giving. And there are some practical questions that always come up. Well, should, you know, should the tithing be on the gross or the net? Well, think about that historically. That's a relatively modern question, isn't it? It's a relatively modern question. And that presupposes, you know, the, we have Social Security and income tax and all kinds of things withheld and and, and the situation is different if you're a 1099 versus a W-2 employee. The situation is different if you're, if you're self-employed, certainly. And all these different things. But here are some principles. Rather than trying to, to answer those in, in a legalistic sense, because, again, the, the Mosaic law isn't what we're wrestling with here. There's a principle. There are multiple principles at work. And one is the principle of first fruits. We saw that last time. We saw that was the reason that Abel's offering, for example, was accepted and pleasing to God. It was the first and best of his flocks, whereas Cain gave just from the overflow what was left. This is the principle that God comes first in all things. And again, we think about the kingship of Christ and his ownership and his rule over all things. And nowhere is that, that shown up more, more tangibly and probably more accurately than in the management of our financial affairs. What is a priority for us? And it's the principle that God is the owner. He's the giver of all things. And there's a contrast. In the Old Covenant, there was a contrast between those first fruits that were given. And so you imagine the farmer goes out in his field, and the very first baskets that he picks, his whole crop hasn't come in yet. 
It's not like the crop just magically appears one morning, goes out, it's all, it's all there. He's picking some, that's the first fruits, and he gives that to the Lord, and he gives it in faith that this isn't it, that there's going to be an abundant harvest yet to come, but he gives the very first. Now think about this. You've waited all winter long. You've been eating the stale grain. You've been waiting for the fresh fruit, and the first fruit that comes, man, you can't, can't, you can't wait to eat that. No, that's, that belongs to the Lord. I give that to the Lord, and I may still be waiting another week or two before the rest of the harvest comes in. This is the idea of the first fruits. And the contrast there is to the gleanings. In the Old Covenant, if you had a, if you had a big rectangular field, you were told that you could, not, you could not harvest all the way into the corners. That was to be left for the poor. You, you were to leave that behind so the poor could come and take that w- which was left over, whatever fell by the wayside as you were picking your crop, but also what was still left completely untouched in the corners was to be left. But some approach giving to the Lord in that way, and we get it backwards. Rather than giving the first fruits to the Lord, we take the first fruits for ourselves and give the Lord the gleanings. The gleanings were for the poor. The gleanings was for those who had no other means. The worship of God required the first fruits, the first and best. So if, if in your own household budget you think, well, whatever's left at the end of the month, that's what I'll give to the Lord. Well, that's backwards, isn't it? And it's also practically speaking, Life happens, and there usually isn't anything left, is there? But we, we, we take out what, what is most important has to come out first. Dr. R.C. Sproul said this. This is helpful. He says, when we don't tithe, we reduce the ministry of Christ. One of the greatest barriers to expanding the kingdom of Christ in this world is financial. And we don't like to say that, do we? We want to sound really spiritual and say, well, we, we don't need money. We just kind of like going into marriage. We don't need uh, practically. We just need love. That's all we need. And then about a month later, we're going, yeah, you needed more than that, didn't you? In a similar way, we can say, we see Jesus. We just need these, these, this, this, this sort of warm spiritual fuzzies. That, that's great, and we do need that. But as he said, one of the greatest barriers to expanding the kingdom of Christ in this world is financial. I mean, how many times has a church plant not happened because there was no funding? There was no way to organize the people and be able to get a place to meet and be able to start that work because just the funds weren't available. How many times were there was an opportunity to go into a foreign area, to a, to a place where the gospel has not been faithfully preached, but there was no financial support, there was no means to make that happen? Dr. Sproul goes on, he says, The Bible teaches that we are to invest in the kingdom of God. We live in a country that was built on the principle of capitalism. And the fundamental idea of capitalism is this. Delayed gratification. Instead of taking the money we make and spending it all now, we save it and invest it. This allows our capital to go to work for us, expanding our wealth. The most important investment we can ever make is in the kingdom of God because it has eternal returns. These returns are not just for us, but also for our family, our children, our grandchildren. This generation of Christians must invest in the things of God for the sake of the next generation. This follows Jesus' admonition, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I honestly believe that if you invest in the kingdom of God, you won't lose anything in the final analysis. Tithe from the top and learn to do that as early as you can in life. He's exactly right, and it's good sound advice. In the Great Commission, Jesus requires the planting and ongoing support of local churches. King Jesus commanded us to establish and fund embassies on his behalf, where his name is sovereign, where his name is proclaimed. Now, we see in the Great Commission these firm commandments to go, to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them, to observe all that he has commanded. But there's also a very sweet and precious promise here in the Great Commission. It's not only a command, it's also a sure promise from him. And that's this. The Great Commission comes with the king's promised presence. Our king has promised his presence. And his promise certainly pertains to his presence as prophet, priest, and king within a local body of believers, that, that Christ actively governs his church through his word and spirit. And also, 
This promise pertains to every single one of us, every individual member, every individual child of God, every individual saint striving to serve his king faithfully. This promise rests upon you as well. He's with you. He's made a promise in, by, by saying, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's making a promise that he will provide. He is able to provide, and he, he's willing to provide. But it's also here a reminder that he owns everything, and we are but stewards who will give an account. When he says, I am with you always, to the end of the age, he's reminding us he is returning again. And when he returns, he will ask us as managers to give an account, to give a reckoning. I don't know about you, but I need to hear again and again that Jesus has promised to remain with us. I need to hear that. I need to, I need to be reminded that he is an active and present God, that he has not left us to our own devices, to our own resources. And the fact that Matthew I mentioned earlier in verse 16, he says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. One commentary referred to this as an 11-ish gathering. And by that, he meant there, there was an incompleteness here. That's a reminder of the difficulties that we're going to have in this age. The incompleteness. No church ever has had all the funds they wish they had. I don't think. Uh, no, no family has, has ever, just working families have ever said, oh yeah, we've got more than we've ever would need and we, we, we don't, can't imagine we would ever need any income again. Most of us don't live in that kind of situation. And by reminding us here by Matthew referring to this 11, he's, he's, he's reminding the church that there is, in this age, necessarily an incompleteness. There is an inherent lack, but that lack is not unmet. Jesus himself is the one who meets those needs. And, Matthew says, when they see him, when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, the word here doesn't mean that this was a settled unbelief. And, and this is among the 11. But, but they were, it was almost one of those, am I, they, kind of they're doubting their own sight. They're rubbing their eyes going, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? And some were still wrestling. I mean, think about this. The, 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 the profound nature of the resurrection. I mean, just three days earlier, three days before, they scattered. They watched him be hung on a tree. They knew he was dead. And then he comes back to life. No one had ever heard of such a thing, even though he told them. He still wrestled to believe this. And now, even, even 40 days later, he appears among them, and some are still wrestling with this reality. And, and I think this reminds us, the reason Matthew has included this here is that this, this reminds us that in this work of the Great Commission, in the planting and establishing and supporting of churches, we're still going to be faced with doubts, aren't we? We're still going to have to confront our own unbelief, aren't we? We're still going to have to wrestle with the practical realities and, and, and wondering, is it enough? Do we have what we need? Parting with our money and possessions in particular is, is a constant exercise of our faith, isn't it? It's a constant exercise of our faith. And, and just like an athlete needs an ongoing conditioning and training to keep his skills and his, and his heart and lungs strong and healthy. Our wise God, our perfect God, knows that we need that same kind of ongoing conditioning by means of our giving to strengthen our humble dependence upon Christ. Because this is the world we live in. There, there are finite resources. And when we, when we give because, oh, I have full assurance that I have everything I'm going to need, so then I can give. Well, that's not faith, is it? That's sight. And to strengthen those, those faith muscles, if you will, we need that ongoing discipline. And for many of you, this is a reminder and, and hopefully an encouragement to persevere in doing well. In, in Galatians 6, Paul admonishes the Galatians church to, to, to sow to the Spirit rather than sowing to the flesh and to persevere in doing that. Not to grow weary of well-doing, but, but to keep on believing that you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. 
But for others, you've not yet taken that, that leap of faith to make the financial support of your local church a, a vital part of your walk with God. R.T. Francis is commenting on this, this dynamic here with the disciples. There are 11 of them, and they've got to be thinking, you know, here was Judas. I mean, he was the one we put in charge of the money bag. He, we thought he was one of the most trustworthy ones of all of us, and he betrayed us. I mean, that, that was a, if you've ever been, experienced that kind of betrayal, you know that it kind of rattles you to the core. Then Christ is resurrected. They don't know what all this means. Some of them doubted. Listen to R.T. France. He says, fear and trembling, anxiety, uncertainty, and doubt struggle with joy and worship. You ever experienced that? Fear and trembling, anxiety, uncertainty, and doubt struggle with joy and worship. But isn't that where we live? And that that shows up in financial ways, but in in a hundred other ways too, doesn't it? With our health. Our, our family, extended family relationships, our work relationships, all those kinds of things. There's this, there's this tension, our joy and our worship with our anxieties. And, and I remember very well as a new believer how, how anxious I was when, when Gene and I decided we're going, to be giving, we're going to begin giving a tithe, a tenth of our first fruits to the Lord. And, and I, I didn't know how things were, would work out. And, and many times... Since then, as we've had opportunities to give generously to, to our church and to others in, in need, we've never, ever, ever once regretted it. I, we've never looked back and said, wow, I wish we had that back. Not ever. And sometimes we've given and seen it squandered. And that, that's, that's the reality. But I didn't, I didn't even regret that. Because we gave in faith. We gave believing the Lord would do with this what he will do with that. Through the prophet Malachi, the Lord says to his church, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Because it tests me. Test me in this. Remember, the Lord Jesus knows you. He knows your experience. He knows your circumstances. He knows all the negative things that have happened previously. He knows your struggles. He knows your anxieties. He knows your doubts. And he speaks to every one of us, every one of you, and says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. You can read this in Luke 12. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They they don't toil, they don't spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things and your Father knows you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give it to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, There will your heart be also. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Our Lord understood 
He, he knows our frame. He knows our weaknesses. He, he knew he could almost, I mean, not almost, he could read the minds of his disciples and know what they were thinking. They were thinking in their mind, like, like we think, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And he says, don't be afraid, little flock. Don't be anxious. All those things that, that you're worried about, the Gentiles and all the nations worry about that. You, you have a heavenly father who, who it's his joy, it's his delight to give you the kingdom, to give it to you. So the Great Commission begins and it ends with this universal kingship of Christ. He, he is the owner, he is the governor, but also the giver of all things. And the Great Commission requires the planting and, and support of local churches. It requires not only the, the support of our own local church, but it requires us to, to think outward, to think beyond ourselves, to think into the, into the rest of the world and prayerfully consider how, how can we serve the kingdom of Christ in all places? And the Great Commission comes with this precious promise that our King is with us always. One day He's going to return. And He will ask of all of His stewards, how is my house doing? How how did you manage my affairs? The Great Commission of King Jesus to His church requires the active participation of all His subjects. No one is exempt. Kind of like the Israeli army. Nobody gets out of the draft. The Great Commission of King Jesus to his church requires the active participation of every single follower of Christ. And all of his subjects are required generously to share not only of their treasure, but of their time, their resources, their their gifts, their presence before the Lord. May he give us the grace to hear, to believe, and to obey his word. Let's pray. Father, you are a good and an awesome God. You are the giver of all gifts. You are the one who provides the birds of the field, the birds of the air, and you provide to us. We pray that you'll give us faith to believe you. Convict us of of sin. Grant to us repentance where it is necessary. Grant to us a love of Christ that demonstrates itself in a desire to see his name proclaimed throughout the world, to see our brothers and sisters in other places who are in need and want, that we would have opportunities generously to help them and and provide for them as they wait upon you. We pray that you would teach us a, a desire an eagerness to sacrifice our own comforts for the sake of those in other places, for the sake of Christ and for the sake of our, uh, our eager anticipation of, of worshiping together with brothers and sisters from all over the world, every nation and tongue and tribe and people, singing before the throne and before the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Amen.